So there's a, there's a rough chronology moving from the four gospels uh, then to the spread of the good news in the book of Acts, and then a whole series of uh, of letters that explain mm. what was going on in the churches that were established in the 30 plus years of the book of Acts. Hmm. Welcome to the Guilt Grace Gratitude Podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hey y'all, this is Peter Bell, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. We started a Bible study in Santa Ana under the oversight of Oceanside United Reformed Church. We've got a growing group of people from a wide variety of backgrounds with the hope and prayer that we will plant a church in Santa Ana this summer. If you're looking for a church that preaches the gospel every week and has close-knit fellowship, contact us at SantaAnnaReformed at gmail.com or find the link in our show notes to be added to our list. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast. My name is Nick, and I'm here with Peter, my co-host. It's another day of fresh grace and mercy. And uh, as I've mentioned before, just in case you guys are uh, popping into season two for the first time, we're doing something a little different than season one. We're having a guest on each episode that has extensive research and knowledge based on the Reformed Church. Uh, They're either a theologian or a pastor, and uh, it will be delivered in a concise way, just with some of the most common questions both believers and non-believers have. Our special guest today is Dr. Bob Yarbrough, and we're going to be talking about the background of the New Testament. And Peter, uh, let you kind of take it away with further introducing. Yeah, we're excited to have Dr. Yarbrough on our podcast. He's the professor of New Testament at Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. So we're trying to make the rounds around the seminaries and, and hit all the hit all the reformed ones. Uh, he's been teaching New Testament there for something like 15 to 20 years in a couple other places, colleges, universities. Um, but we are very excited to have him on, talk about the background of the New Testament, how we can read it better. And um, yeah, some categories we can think of as believers or um, atheists, if they have had some questions about the New Testament that they want to get answered by an expert. So thank you for coming on, Dr. Yarbrough. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm going to start off just asking some questions. Um, of the 66 books in the entire Bible, there's 27 of those are from the New Testament. And just kind of kick it off, why is the New Testament separate from the Old Testament? And why is there a, why is there a time between them? And what is the time between them? Yeah, um, I, I suppose I'll start with the time between them first. Um, the New Testament writings emerged, and, and it depends on who you consult here, but probably no earlier than about AD 40 would be uh, the earliest estimate of a, of a New Testament book being written. And most people date the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, around 440 BC. So we're talking in the, in the neighborhood of 500 years gap between the people that wrote the Old Testament and the events that it describes and the people that wrote the New Testament and the events that 
it describes. And there is a, a close tie between the communities of faith in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but there are very large differences in the historical, cultural, political, and religious settings between um, the communities from which each of these two groups of writings emerged. Hmm. Um, so what would, so somebody who's come into the New Testament and Old Testament, they're wondering why are there, like, we have these two separate books. I see an Old Testament, I see these, what's, what's the difference between the New Testament and the Old Testament? And I know that's a, it's a big question, but I think a lot of people wonder, like, what, like, why, why read both? What's the difference? How am I supposed to, how am I supposed to see these things? Yeah, well, one way to, to, to look at that would be um, to, to realize Old Testament, New Testament, um, those really are two different ways of looking at an activity of God. Hmm. And that activity of God is a covenanting hmm. activity. Uh, God looks on uh, humanity. He sees uh, fallen men and women, and he has moved redemptively to do something about uh, their sin problem. And, and what he has done is he's, he's come into humanity and he has uh, called certain people to be his emissaries and his representatives. And one of those people was Abraham. And he made a covenant with Abraham. It wasn't the first covenant he made. He made a covenant with Adam and Eve. He made a covenant with Noah. But he made a covenant with Abraham that uh, is really sort of what the Old Covenant, Old Testament is built around. And then there are other covenants that are administrative of Abraham's covenant, like the Mosaic mm -hmm. covenant or the Davidic covenant, but there's a whole package of God's uh, making agreements with, and we call them his covenant people. Mm -hmm. uh, we call them Hebrews in the Old Testament. They came to be called Jews after about 587 BC. So there's this Hebrew Jewish heritage, and uh, there are some uh, continuities through it all, most notably um, God covenanting. God reaching out, God establishing a, uh, a presence with a people, and then uh, those people kind of having an ebb and flow of, of responsiveness, to, responsiveness to God. Sometimes they respond positively, sometimes they don't. And the Old Testament really is an account of God's redemptive work in the world with, with all people, but especially with the people of his choosing, uh, through whom he's going to uh, be a blessing to the whole world. Mm. So that's the Old Covenant, or we call those writings the, the, the Old Testament. Yeah. And then the New Testament is, is more about the fulfillment of, of the promises um, mm. and the terms of the Old Testament. And, and they, uh, the New Testament, the New Covenant centers around uh, the promised deliverer of the Old Testament, or the Messiah, mm -hmm. uh, or, or the, the king, the, the one who would come and and bring in the full measure of God's kingdom. And uh, that person we know as, as Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Christ means Messiah. So New Testament really refers to the New Covenant, mm -hmm. uh, the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament that uh, came to fruition in the mm -hmm. coming of Jesus. Yeah, that's helpful. So it's not a, an entirely new work. It's fulfilling what was promised in kind of a seed form in the old. Yes. There are all kinds of continuities, and, and then there are also significant discontinuities. But gotcha. um, for those of us who are more reformed in inclination, we, we tend to stress more the continuity and yeah. less discontinuity. Yeah. In extreme forms, there are people that, that say, and this goes all the way back to the second century at least, 
uh, we don't need the old covenant. Uh, all we need is Jesus. Hmm. Uh, all we need is this new religion that started when Jesus came or started at Pentecost or something like that. But through, through history, pretty consistently, the church has ruled that uh, out of bounds, even saying it, it's, it's heretical. Hmm. Uh, there's, one, there's one Bible, there's one God, there's one master plan of redemption centered in Christ the Savior, and the Old Testament uh, lays the foundation for his coming, and the New Testament announces hmm. the fulfillment of his arrival. Yeah, that's helpful. That's good. And it also, of course, predicts his return. And, and this happens to be December 2nd. So this is uh, two days after the first Sunday of Advent. Yeah. Now that's when we celebrate or prepare to celebrate, you know, the, the, the coming of Christ, which the New Testament is all about. Mm. Mm. That really lays the foundation of this topic very well. So thank you for that. Um, if we grab our Bibles right now and open it, and the New Testament starting with Matthew and going all the way to Revelation. Um, the question would be, is the New Testament in chronological order? Because there's some conjecture, assuming there's some conjecture with this, um, basing on what are truly the earliest writings and what are the latest books. Well, let me start by saying uh, that what the New Testament books describe Right? If you just pick up Matthew and start reading, what they describe does generally move from earlier to later. Mm. So there's a, there's a rough chronology moving from the four Gospels uh, then to the spread of the good news in the book of Acts. And then a whole series of, uh, of letters that explain mm. what was going on in the churches that were established in the 30 plus years of the book of Acts hmm. and, and even beyond that. So if you start at Matthew and go to Revelation and you say, okay, what's being described, generally that's a chronological flow. Gotcha. From Jesus coming to Jesus' second coming in the book of Revelation and the end of all things in the beginning of a new age. Uh, if you ask, okay, each individual book, when was it written? In a sense, if what the books are describing is, is accurate, it doesn't really matter. Was a book written in AD 50? Was mm. it written in AD 53? Was it written in AD 62? You know, that's not a critical question. Mm. Uh, it has become a critical question uh, in the last roughly 200 years because there has been a move, uh, and we call it historical criticism, uh, to, to try to, uh, I would say, overanalyze mm. the writings and uh, doubt their historicity and doubt yeah. their accuracy. And then, um, you know, you could, any historical artifacts, you can ask questions that we don't have the evidence to, a to answer. And you can say, well, we can't answer all these questions. They must, this must not be true. Mm. And so the New Testament and the Old Testament, you know, there's been a field day for the last couple hundred years of people uh, analyze them, analyzing them through through skeptical lenses and saying, well, you know, we can argue that Luke was written in AD 60 or AD 75 or, or AD 105. Nobody knows when it was written or um, uh, we don't think there were eyewitnesses to any of this. Uh, none of this could really have happened. People don't walk on water. Uh, <laughs> these miracles must be superstitious stories. So these things must be fables that came maybe from the second century. Mm. And projected back. And once you get into that world of skepticism, yeah, there's all kinds of views of 
when the books might have been written. And of course, here we can't go into all that, but I would just yeah. go back to the question, does what they describe, does it correspond to the historical reality of the first century? Mm. You know, was there a John the Baptist? Was there a Herod the Great who tried to kill the baby and all these things? And if, and if they generally depict what happened, then you have a rough chronology beginning from Matthew going to Revelation. Hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. And I've, I'm sure some people have, and I've, I've read some stuff, New York Times has posted some, some stuff. So Bart Ehrman's a guy that I've read a little bit. He's kind of a more popular, popular level, uh, level writer who writes a lot of popular stuff that I'm sure people have read um, before. And he talks about this stuff too, with you can't know. And it's, it was all these other religions, these other Christianities that were trying to compete. And then eventually the Orthodox one won out. And so, yeah, I've, I've heard that. And I'm, I'm sure some people, um, those who may not believe, have heard that too, where they're imposing a lot of stuff on the text. Yeah, and, and you know, if you, if you want to read a book on that. Oh, um, yeah, that one's fantastic. Oh, so the, the, uh, the Heresy of Orthodoxy. This is really a book replying to the thesis that Bart Ehrman is trafficking in. It, it's not really his thesis. It's a thesis of, of somebody in Germany called Wolfgang and yeah. this is this book is a very readable and learned reply to the idea that uh, early Christianity was just a mess. Yeah, and about AD two hundred, there were some people, uh, you know, Roman religious bureaucrats that that brought order to it all and made it look like there had been an Orthodox Christian confession going back into the first century, but it never happened. And this yeah. book, yeah, it really did happen. Yeah, and it's just be in you know in postmodern thinking, it's become heretical to talk about Jesus and the knowledge of Jesus in the first century. But uh, the sources beg to differ. Yeah, that's that's Dr. Kruger's work, which we appreciate stupendously. We, we love that stuff. It is a very good book, yes. And what's the name of that book again? Because the, the viewers, well, they're not viewers. They're just listening <laughs> to this. <laughs> the Heresy of Orthodoxy. Perfect. So, yeah, we'll link that to the show notes too. And, and it's by Andreas Kirstenberger. And uh, and uh, Michael Kruger. Mm. So this is a question, more of a skeptic question. How can we trust the New Testament canon as we have it today? You kind of touched on this a little bit, but maybe a little more specifically. Sure. Well, uh, I would say this first. There, there's nothing in the New Testament, none of the books there, none of the things that they describe that cannot be plausibly connected to their first century location. Uh, in many cases, we have writings from before the end of the first century. I'm thinking, for example, of Clement of Rome. Clement of Rome in AD 95 quotes a number of writings that are in the New Testament, mm. along with many Old Testament writings. Mm. So we can see by, by the, the end of the first century, when maybe a few of the New Testament writings weren't even written yet, we can see that in the church, a church leader is citing New Testament books as scripture. Hmm. Now, not, not all of them, and you know, not in any systematic way. But what I'm saying is, uh, for somebody that wants to say, well, I, I don't even believe these books are from the first century. The problem hmm. is that there, there are quotations of them from outside of those writings that we can date. Huh. Uh, secondly, there are no writings outside the New Testament that have a comparable claim to be original and to be authentic. It's not like there are dozens of writings out there that um, 
scholars say, oh, these are all first century writings too. Why are they not in the canon? The, the earliest extra New Testament writing that, that claims to, to, to have an apostle's name on it uh, is the Gospel of Thomas. Mm, I just read and, that one too. Yeah, and most scholars would, would date that at the earliest around AD 150. Yeah, and it reads incredibly different than the rest of the New Testament does. Yeah, there, there's no narrative to it. It really shouldn't be called a gospel. There's really no good news. No. And there's no historical development. It's not, it's not a narrative like the other gospels are. So none of the other writings that we have, you know, could be plausibly shoehorned into the New Testament. And, and thirdly, I think usage in churches through the centuries generally confirms the canon as we have it. Now, this is, this, is, this is something that's emerging. So we have, for example, the Muratorian canon list, which I think is from the middle of the second century. Yeah, like 150 AD, I think. You know, there's, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good Ish. ballpark date. Um, and then we, we have citations from various fathers. We can kind of put together the shape of, of the Bible as they viewed it, say, with the time of Irenaeus in AD 180. Hmm or later on Origen or Eusebius, he says a lot about what books were regarded as for sure authentic, which were heretical, which were kind of on the bubble. But broadly speaking, the 27 books we have in the New Testament, um, you can argue that at least by the, the beginning of the second century, say the first quarter of the second century, and some people would say back into the first century, we can see a pattern of these writings being connected with Jesus and his first followers, the apostles, or, or close associates of them, like uh, you've got Luke was a close associate of Paul. So, you know, the, the, the cumulative picture here is there's no reason to doubt the authenticity of the New Testament uh, writings hmm. as, as, a, as sort of a yardstick for what is the saving message of Christ and, and the word canon basically means yardstick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we've, Peter and I have touched on this before, but just really closely relating to this is the misunderstanding of translations, because I know that's a huge, like, uh, skeptic um, question or observation. They say, you know, the New Testament, it can't be uh, trusted because it's been translated so many times but um i don't know if you had a, a quick little feedback comment on that uh well all translations are made from ancient texts and and anybody that says we just don't know what the ancient texts of the new testament were anybody who says that uh is in la la land uh, scholars across the board, including Bart Ehrman, he agrees that we know what Paul wrote in the book of Romans. We yeah. know what Luke wrote in the gospel of Luke. Now, is it true? That's another question. But all translations are made from uh, what we call a critical text, in other words, a scholarly text. And there's no question that mm. uh, whether we know what Matthew wrote or not. Now, did Matthew write Matthew? That's another question. Does, does the things he write, are they true? That's another question. But the text of Matthew, to a very high degree, 98 or 99 percent, we know what that document said whenever it was distributed in the first century. 
Yeah, just going back to the sources. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, with like Matthew, could have been Matthew, Mark, could have been the scribe of Peter. I've heard that before, those kind of things. Um, how is the first century world of the New Testament different from ours today? Well, how about shorter lifespans? Hmm. <laughs> yep. uh, maybe, maybe 30 years, 35 years. Uh, I'd be dead next year. Women's lifespans were typically shorter on average because so many of them died in childbirth. Uh, there was a lack of medical, medical care as, as we know it. Uh, you could say in general, existence was much more perilous in the first century. Uh, I think there was less of the illusion that people have today. We live longer, we have lots of comforts. Uh, we're not even afraid of some diseases because we're pretty sure we can get treatment. Uh, People really think they're going to live forever now. But I don't think people were that deluded in the first century. People knew that life was short and brutal, and they better get on with it. And if they think there's an afterlife, they better be prepared for it. Uh, also, the first century world um, really was two worlds. And, and it was a Jewish world, and it was a pagan world. And when you read the Bible, the Bible is written very largely from the point of view of people that are in a community that has been touched by God. So they believe there's a God who created the world. Uh, they believe that um, this God has made his moral will known. They believe this God offers a saving personal relationship with him. You know, th these are all, this is sort of, you know, common coin in in church life but in in the first century if you were not a jew then you were polytheistic you believed in many gods uh, you believed that there was no order or telos in creation there was no goal life was was leading nowhere on the the mega level uh, matter had no beginning it was it was eternal and existence was cyclic you know, history was a series of, of cycles. Moreover, religion and morals were disconnected. Hmm. When we think of religion, we think of rules. But in the first century, religion was not conceived as something that had to do like with sexual behavior, except some religions use sexual behavior. Hmm. But in, in, in the Christian tradition, the Jewish tradition, God is a moral God. But the ancient gods in the pantheon, they were immoral. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, a lot of times they were running around cheating with each other. So uh, there was no clear sense of sin apart from the common grace of, of people being made in the image of God and having a moral sense. In the pagan world, there was no way to connect with a God who could forgive and could, could offer a personal relationship. So those are, those are differences, really two worlds, mm. the pagan world and the Jewish and Christian world. And then just a word about similarities. Um, humans then as now were often their own worst enemies. In other words, people tended to self-destruct. Uh, in the first century, personal relationships were difficult. Marriages were difficult. Uh, husbands and wives didn't get along. Uh, people suspected people of other ethnicities. They didn't like them. They fought against them. They enslaved them. 
Uh, in other words, sin made its impact at the social level and at the personal level and at the geopolitical level. So, you know, it was a different world, but in some ways it's the same world that we live in today. A, a world that, you know, we're always wondering, is it going to shake to pieces in the next five years or the next 25 years? <laughs> it's just a question of when, because you can look around and you, you can see, you know, uh, existence of perilous. Hmm. Yeah, that helps for both context and reading the Gospels and Epistles, Acts, Revelation, but also the way that we can apply them to our day-to-day -day as believers or, or those who are not yet believers, that it is applicable today because we have the same sin condition, but some of the context might change, but that doesn't change the meaning for today. You know, um, one thing I've done a lot of is, is teach overseas, and I've taught in Africa a lot. And it's amazing, uh, you know, teaching in Africa over two dozen times in, in a, a, a Muslim-majority country. It was Sudan, and it was in, uh, in Khartoum, Sudan. And so I'm teaching. It's being translated into Arabic and also into the language that the Eritreans speak, uh, Tigrina or something like that. Uh, but when I would be teaching from the portions of the Bible that talk about marriage, you know, I'm a North American, uh, they're Africans, but, and, and we're, we're, we're talking about documents written in Hebrew or Greek a thousand years, 2,000 years, 3,000 years ago. We're all laughing at the same jokes and we all understand, you know, husbands and wives, there are, there are differences from culture to culture, but the basic dynamic of husband and wife, it doesn't matter where you go in history, it doesn't matter where you go in the world today, there is a lot more similar than there is different. And so the Bible, in the, in the solutions that it offers in bringing peace to, to husbands and wives and helping them to be one uh, before God, uh, that message is just as real and true and necessary now as it was in the time of Abraham or the time of Paul. It's really cool. Yeah, it is. Times and culture change, but people don't. Well, not, not as much as some theories would have it. Mm -hmm. You know, you're talking really the, the theory of radical relativity. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and if, you know, in, in this theory, if, if reality is just social construction, then in principle, we, construct, we can construct ourselves to be anything we want. And so there's no continuity between cultures. But on another reading, uh, there, are, there are elements bigger than we are that are determinative for our nature. For example, creation. If God made us a certain way, we can play around all we want with our consciousness, but that may not change the ontology of our being. We may still be men and women, no matter what we say, identify as being. You know, that's mm -hmm. another theory. It's not popular right now, but it's the theory the Bible works on. God is normative for who we are. We are not normative for who we are. Mm -hmm. That's why we should listen to God more than we listen to human voices. Yep. Totally agree with that. <clears throat> and that's why the Bible's so important. That's why I'm so important. I'm so happy you guys are, we're talking about the Bible because the Bible really is more the word of God than anything else that, that we could possibly find in the world. Mm -hmm. Did all, did all of the New Testament authors know Jesus personally? If not, what can we learn about eyewitness accounts to help us read the documents today? They did not 
all know him, although most of them did. Most of them did. I, I think the uh, the four uh, apostles that are responsible for the Gospels, um, or the three apostles in Luke, Luke says he talked to the apostles. So in other words, most of the people that wrote the New Testament, either directly or indirectly, were eyewitnesses. Um, what, what can we learn about eyewitness accounts? You know, if you really want to get into it at an advanced level, there's a book by Richard Baucom called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Yeah, that one's good. Now, it's, it's not a book that the average person is going to read and enjoy because it's very much an academic book, but it does show that at the highest level of uh, scholarly uh, uh, thought and, and discussion, you can make a very strong case for uh, much of the New Testament coming from eyewitness accounts. Uh, we know eyewitnesses exist from, I think, first of all, from the gospel titles. And this has been a, you know, a discussion over the years. But um, I, I think there's good reason to think that the people who, uh, like the gospel of John, I think John wrote that gospel. Matthew wrote that gospel. Um, uh, Luke tells us he talked to apostles and eyewitnesses. And uh, Peter, as you already alluded, there's a very strong tradition in the first century that the, the gospel of Mark is really Peter's gospel. So um, let's just say what we can learn about eyewitness accounts is first, they exist. And then number two, uh, we, we can see some of the things that some of the writers say they saw. Like, like how about this? when the uh, water and the blood gushed out of Jesus' side on the cross. John says, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. Now, just a word here, going back to the question, what's different about the first century? In the first century, the most common convention in writing history was to write it in the third person. So, for example, if you read Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, it's his account of his generalship in these wars, but he writes in the third person as if he's watching himself do all this stuff. Huh. And that's what John is doing here. He says, he who saw it has borne witness. And later on in John 21, 24, he says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. So today people may doubt, but there's very good reason to conclude, you know, these documents claim to be eyewitness documents. And you know, if people heard these things and they saw Jesus do these things, then they happened. And if he did and, and said the things he did, they are relevant to us today. That's why the eyewitness thing is so important. Yeah. Because that 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 is rock solid um not only plausibility it's compellingly true mm. that these things were said these things happened this man was like this and he calls us to account mm. what are we going to do about it yeah that's crucial eyewitnesses saw it yeah how would you answer uh, a skeptic that would say Jesus is just a first century political figure? 
Well, is the question, is he or was he? Is he? Was he? Was he a political figure? Well, I would say he was not just a political figure or primarily a political figure. I mean, in a sense, everything that is socially significant has, has a political implication. And there were people, you know, there were political rulers who were gunning for Jesus for the three years that he was operating. They were, they were trying to, to cut him down. So he was political in that he, he, he brought political implications. But, you know, before Pontius Pilate, um, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So I think in a nutshell, I would say that Jesus came to redeem the lost. He did not come to foment political revolution. Hmm. So in that sense, he was not a political revolutionary. He did not come to uh, found a political movement that would take over governments and, uh, uh, you know, revolutionize the the ordering of of laws and and those sorts of things. That's not yeah, to that's... say that that his followers don't have a mandate to be uh, obedient to God in their political lives. But your question was, is Jesus a political figure? And I think Jesus came to change lives and change relationships and change uh, first microcosms of people and then uh, expanding communities of people, and and that would in its own way, revolutionized the world, as indeed Christianity has revolutionized the world. But not because Jesus was a revolutionary. Hmm. Yeah, that's the number one thing I hear, is he's political and he's moral, but nothing else. But it's not, it's that he's those things, but obviously so much more changing yeah. us, bringing and us into the kingdom of God. His followers then, as, as they go into lives, out into life in their respective callings, his followers may well have uh, political responsibilities. They may be a mm. Christian judge or a Christian legislator, and and then uh, indirectly, Jesus does uh, he does have a you know political influence among his followers. Mm. Yeah, and it's from my understanding um, that people from the Old Testament, when they were thinking about the Messiah to come, it was going to be this mighty Hercules, maybe uh, military warrior leader that's going to be more of a political warrior that would fix things right then and there. But obviously Jesus is so much more than that, and he's actually changed the souls of people past, present, future, ever, in a way that nobody, that I think surprised everybody, but even the biggest theologians of the Old Testament that could even try to project, right? I think you're right, Nick. I think that's very true. Hmm. Well, cool. Well, that's I think all the questions I have. Yeah, we're running out of time, but that was that was huge. If there's anything else that you want to add, we have a like a minute or two left, or if we want to write up, wrap it up. Well, I'll, I'll just say that. Um, you know, we've only scratched the surface of, of, yeah. of a wide range of topics here. But the one thing, when, when you first said New Testament backgrounds, I was thinking about the bodies of writings that are accessible to really anybody. Hmm. Uh, anybody can, 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 can buy a cheap edition of the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
you can buy Josephus's Jewish Wars, which tell the story of uh, much of the New Testament era from the standpoint of the Roman invasion of, of Galilee and, and uh, Judea and their, their destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Uh, you can read the Apostolic Fathers. You can read, there's a book called The Twelve Caesars by a Roman historian called Suetonius. And uh, it starts out, you know, you spell his name uh, sort of like if you put out suet for a bird, you know, Suetonius. Uh, it's The Twelve Caesars. And it's really gossipy. <laughs> but he talks about Caesar Augustus. He talks about uh, Nero. He talks about Caligula. He talks about all the emperors that that were alive during the time of the New Testament, and he's you know he's not a Christian, uh, but it's fascinating to read what Roman life was like and what the Roman emperors were like and how they valued life and how they viewed religion. So I, I just want to make a plug for really interested people: read some of the sources for yourself. Don't just you know hmm. read National Geographic and and watch NPR or and you know Discovery Channel or something. Read some of these sources because anybody can can read their way into some of the first century writings or read the Old Testament Apocrypha. Well, thanks for coming on, Doctor Yarbrough. That was really helpful. Uh, we I know I learned a lot. I, I think the audience did too. Yeah, that was that was really helpful. Um, we'll link to some of those resources in the show notes. Um, yeah, this is really helpful for understanding how to read the New Testaments, what it is, how it's different from the Old Testaments, and then how some of this context helps us understand how to read the New Testament. So thank you so much, Dr. Yarbrough, for coming on our podcast, and we will see you guys next week. Yep. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And we, as we've said before, we are bridging the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. So we would like to make sure this is enjoyed by others around the world. And how to best do that is rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah, and you, after you rate and review, or instead of rate and review, or doing everything all in once, retweeting us on Twitter, liking us on Twitter, liking us on Instagram, following us on both of those platforms, because that actually puts in front of people's physical face, this podcast, these guests, and most importantly, the gospel, the doctrines uh, that these guests are, are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. It helps get in front of more people. Amen. And hopefully you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing and, uh, after that, after tithing, if you have any means left over, please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy. As again, we bridge the gap to reform Christian <laughs> theology. Exactly. The yeah. And you guys can find that link on Anchor, our official Anchor website. If you just go on um, our social media links, it'll, it'll link you to that website. It's also at the bottom of these this podcast show notes. If you're on this podcast, this specific episode, scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes and you guys will find a link for this for three different options of donating. So we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap, pay for shipping, get nicer stuff, all for the focus of spreading the gospel further. Yep. All for the kingdom of God. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you guys next time. <laughs>